The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, we're, we started the story last uh, Sunday of Jacob and his dream of the stairway to heaven, and we did not quite get finished with it, so we're going to actually pick up the latter part of the story, and uh, the title I picked this morning is On the Right Track, and it is a good question to ask. Are, you, are we on the right track? Uh, and it's good to know that our life is heading in the right direction, and we're, we're on course. Um, as we recognize the seniors this morning... Um, you know, they're kind of like this, this train track here where they're at a fork in the road, or maybe many forks. And as they set off a uh, new level of independence and freedom to choose on their own, a lot of choices laid before uh, young people, a graduating senior. And those choices matter. Uh, if you're a senior this morning, or if you're in even a sophomore, junior, and you're looking at some of those choices, those choices matter. And it sets you on a track, it sets you on a path or a course, and it's not that you can't you know, realign your course, but it's important that you start off on the right path and start off heading in the right direction. And uh, every parent here understands the significance of this and prays desperately for our kids that they make good choices and head in the right direction. Uh, um, and as we do that, as we go through life, uh, it's always good to get a sense that we are on the right track. And the good thing is there's signposts in life. And as you're driving down the track, down the path of life, it's always good to be looking for appropriate signs. Like, for example, if you're driving in your car and your goal is Maasai, right, on a border run, and you're driving along at, you know, the speed of your car, and, uh, you know, you see a car, you see a sign that says Bangkok, 200 kilometers, Okay, that would be a bad sign. That would be a sign that you're not on the right track, right? You're on the wrong track. Uh, life has those kind of signs. And this morning we're going to look at, at Jacob's life. And uh, there are some great um, encouragement for us to check our life, right? So the idea is that if you're at regular intervals in your life, you ought to be asking, am I on the right track? And there's some good questions you can ask yourself to check that, to test that. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Uh, just a brief up-to-date from last week. Uh, Jacob is leaving his home. He's basically running because Esau wants to kill him. He's on his way to Haran, to his aunt and uncle, uncle Laban's house, to find a wife. Uh, mostly his mom has sent him away to protect his life because she's fearful that Esau will be successful in killing him because he's stolen his brother's birthright and blessing. And basically he schemed um, sole inheritance of all of his father's wealth and possessions. Right? And... Uh, made Esau very angry. So he's on his way and he gets to Bethel, out in the middle of nowhere, and he camps out under the stars. Uh, he has nothing really to his name. Uh, he schemed the inheritance, but the ironic thing is you see him fleeing for his life with nothing but pretty much the clothes on his back and uh, on his way to Haran. And uh, he lays down. The only thing he has to sleep on is a it's a rock for a pillow, just to give you an idea of how low life is sunk for him. And uh, while he's sleeping on this rock, he has this dream of the stairway, a God at the top, angels coming up and down. And uh, so let's pick the story up from there. 
Verse 13, at the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. The next morning Jacob got up very early. He took the stone and he had rested his head against, and he set it up as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it. He named that place Bethel, which means house of God, although the name of the nearby village was Luz. Then Jacob made this vow. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place of worshiping God and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. Um, well, first question as we look at this story, uh, how do we know we're on the right track? Uh, first thing, we have to be very clear about the right destination. And it's a bit ironic because uh, as Jacob sets off, I don't know that he has any real destination other than he's following his parents' directions and he's heading to Haran. Um, on the way, God intercepts him, right? And, uh, you know, there's no clue in the text, there's no clue anywhere up to this point in the story of Genesis that Jacob is looking for God. Everything he's done to this point in his life has been very self-made, self-manufactured. He's really manipulated and conned everybody everywhere he's been. And there's no sense of Jacob seeking God, right? No sense that he's a man of prayer, a man of faith, that he's really at all interested in the spiritual side of the promise. He's very interested in the in the material side of the promise, the wealth and treasures of his father. But he seems really kind of clueless about where he's going. But the cool thing that is in the midst of all that, God intercepts him. And uh, here in this dream, God really reveals himself in a very powerful and dramatic way to Jacob. And he restates the promise. And he adds to it, he says, Jacob, I am with you. I am going with you. I'm going before you. And I am going to protect you and provide for you. And all that I promised you is going to be accomplished and fulfilled. Uh, Jacob wakes up from the dream, and he is excited. Okay? Now picture this, and, and I hope you would be too. I hope you know, if God gives you that kind of clear dream or vision, and you have the sense that you encounter the true and living God, we ought to wake up and be quite excited. And he was. Right? Probably the first time in his life, certainly the first time recorded in Scripture, that Jacob really encountered God, right? Uh, where he met him face to face. And God poured out these incredible promises and really reveals himself to Jacob in a powerful way. And what's interesting is, is uh, as the story unfolds, uh, Jacob now has a new goal in life. And now his goal is not simply to go to Haran, but now Jacob wants to come back. 
But interestingly, his goal is not just to come back to his father's house, which would make sense. His goal is not simply to return to his family, to his mother, to his father, maybe not his brother. <laughs> not, so, not so hot on the brother thing. Uh, but that's not his goal now. Notice what he says. He says, God, if you will bring me back to this place. Right? In fact, he sets up, he has this kind of crazy ceremony where he sets up this pillow rock that he had, sets it upright and makes it into kind of a stone pillar. Um, and he anoints it with oil. It pours oil over it. We'll talk about that in a minute, what that was all about. But he says, if, I, if you keep your promises and you bring me back to this place, I will designate this as a place of worship. Right? All of a sudden, Jacob has a, an, a whole new set of goals in his life. And what was his goal? Well, his goal ultimately was God himself. Right? He had encountered God. He got a small taste of God face to face. And now for the first time in Jacob's life, he has a clear destination. Right? And it's not to scheme and manipulate his way through life. It is now to encounter God again. Uh, and in fact, he names this place. He said, surely this is the place where God lives. He's a little confused on his theology, by the way. But, you know, he just met God. He hasn't got this all figured out yet. And so we don't expect him to have perfect theology. Uh, but he says, surely God lives in this place, and I was not aware of it. Right? And he, uh, he said he was afraid. And he says, what an awesome place this is. None other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. Right? Now, his theology was a bit odd because, as many people did in his day, they associated sacred or holy auspicious places as places where God, the gods of heaven would touch earth. Right? Um, I come from the United States, and uh, there's a lot of people who, who love Sedona, Arizona. Okay? And Sedona, Arizona is supposed to be one of these places where the vibes of the universe all, all line up. And people go there by the thousands to... You know, because of this place, it's supposed to have the right vibes, and you can channel something. I don't know what. Uh, and you go there, and you can encounter some spiritual thing. Well, uh, Jacob kind of has that, uh, that concept or idea of it. Uh, and where he may be a bit off on understanding that God is everywhere present. You know, he never read that chapter of his theology book, the whole chapter on omniscience. You know, he fell asleep for that one. Um, but the point is, he... He loves this place because it's the place where he met God, right? And so he calls it the gateway of heaven. And I think what's significant about it is that where his theology may not have been 100% correct, what was true about it is that he saw this as a place where he had access to God, right? That's what the gate of heaven represents. Okay, it's a place where heaven and earth touch and where he identifies it as a, as a meeting place where he can go and find God have access into God's presence. Right? And now that is his goal. His goal is no longer to live his life clueless or uh, without God, but his destination is to be at a place where he has access to God, where he is living or abiding at heaven's gate. Right? Fast forward to the New Testament. Uh, you know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he is very much pictured as the door. Jesus is the gate, the entryway to access with God. And, of course, we can expand our theology that we don't have to go to a place, we don't have to go to Israel, we don't have to go to Jerusalem, we don't have to go to Bethel, we don't have to go to Sedona, Arizona, um, we don't have to go to Chiang Mai, the apparently spiritual center of the universe, right? With all this great spiritual ministry activity going on. Uh, God is everywhere present, but the gateway is real, and the gateway is Jesus himself, right? Uh, and the goal and the destination in life is God. Right? That should be the ultimate destination. 
And so whether you are a sixth grader graduating from elementary school, or I guess you do that now in fifth grade. I'm so confused with the middle school thing. Or if you're a senior graduating from high school, or if you're a senior citizen, you know, on the verge of graduating from life or something, um, <laughs> the goal is the same. The destination is to encounter God and to, to seek Him, right? To seek Him and to know Him, to stand in His presence, right? Um, anything else in life that we pursue as a means of joy, happiness, significance, meaning, purpose in life is simply a sideline that dead ends. Right? Sadly, we get that oftentimes confused and twisted in our Christian thinking. We pursue success, or we pursue fortune, we pursue wealth, we pursue happiness, and God becomes a sideline, kind of a little distraction that we take off on once in a while to kind of be spiritual until we can get back on the main path, which is to pursue what we think will make us happy and be fulfilled. Okay, Jacob's finally, it's dawning on him for the first time that God is himself the destination. He is the source of everything. He is the only one who can truly help him in his times of trouble. He is the one who has promised to take care of him and go with him. Right? Uh, we should be seeking God with all of our life. And until we're clear on that destination, that God himself should be the goal of our life, to know him, to see his face, to grow in a deeper relationship with him, Okay, we're going to be on the wrong track, right? No matter what we do, we're not going to be on the right track. Uh, God must be the goal and destination of our life. To know Him, uh, to know Him more deeply. As uh, the psalmist writes in Psalm 27, 4, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in His temple. Right? Now, that doesn't mean we spend all of our days and nights in church. Uh, it means that we spend life uh, really at the gateway to God's presence with access to Him, learning to live and walk and move and breathe in His presence. Um, so the first thing, clear destination. Second thing, uh, and this is really a signpost, okay? So if we know our destination and we're, we're clear about that, what are some tests we can check our life against? Okay, in other words... Uh, what are some, some ways we can evaluate that we really are pursuing that? And one of the dangers in the Christian life is, and dangers of human nature, is that we can be quite deceptive. And I find myself doing this a lot. I tell myself that I want something. For example, yeah, I want to seek God, right? I want to know God. I want to be a better Christian. And I think that by saying those words, I have accomplished it, Right? That if it's something I want, that it must be true, true and real in my life. But the reality is oftentimes we can say we want one thing, but we can live quite far away from that. Right? And we can convince ourselves that because we want it, it must be true. That's not always the case. So we need to check. We need to evaluate. Am I really on the right track? Am I really pursuing that goal? And here's some things that I think are uh, questions we should ask ourselves. First of all, is there in, in my life a sense of awe and wonder? Okay, do I have a sense of awe and really a growing sense of awe at who God is and what God is about? Uh, I love as, as uh, Jacob wakes up from his dream and he says, man, I had no idea God was in this place. And it says he was afraid. He said he was afraid. Throughout the Old Testament, the most common response to a person who has an encounter with God is fear. 
right? Oftentimes falling on their face before God. Oftentimes paralyzed with fear. Same thing's true in the New Testament. The angel comes to Mary to announce Jesus' birth. And what does Mary feel? Well, she feels great fear, right? Uh, throughout s- Scripture, that, that's kind of the, the scene, right? Uh, God is a God that is to be feared and awed. And that's what happens here. He, uh, he is, is awestruck by God and he's fearful. Now, we're going to kind of wonder, well, what's this fear about? Well, fear for us is a God-given gift to protect us, right? And what fear is about is, is sensing that something, is, there's a power or a force that can bring to us harm or danger or threat, right? Uh, I, I chose this picture because I really like rock climbing. And uh, I, love, I love the height, and I love toying with gravity. See, rock climbing is all about teasing gravity. And gravity is an awesome force, all right? And it's a compelling power that is constantly pulling us downward, right? And uh, the higher up you go, and the less solid your footing, the more you sense the peril of gravity, and that's why I like rock climbing. It's a huge adrenaline rush because you get up there and you know that the earth is just trying to rip you off this rock face and, and pull you screaming down to the ground to crush you. Right? It's awesome. Right? It is, there's something very odd about that experience. Right? Um, well, when we think about God, uh, when we think about who and what he is, uh, he is a great force and power. Right? Uh, God is awesome because he is infinitely beyond gravity and heights. Right? Um, there is many senses in which to be in the presence of God is to find ourselves like this girl here, uh, several hundred feet off the ground, with your life hanging by a thread. Right? Well, she's got actually a pretty good rope there, climbing gear. Imagine being on that spot right there with no rope, okay? Clinging very precariously, right? Okay, that is what our encounter with God is like. And, and there's two things about God that make this true, okay? Uh, and it's not that God is a vindictive God who's waiting to just thump us, all right? Now, that would be something to be fearful of, right? And certainly... We ought to be on guard if that were the case. But the, the reality is two things about God that, that uh, produce in us fear. The first is that we fear things we don't understand or know, right? Uh, when we encounter the unknown, it's always fearful. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I hate to admit it, I hate to admit this, but I was really afraid of the dark, right? And one of my jobs when I was a kid was to feed our, la- our, our, uh, our collie, dog, uh, who was kind of tied up in a run out behind our house and we lived in the mountains and there was no street lights and every night in the winter especially when it got darker they'd have to take my little can of dog food out through the darkness and I was just sure there were all kinds of unknown creatures and monsters and bears and boogeymen waiting to get me and I would walk out there just shaking and I would quickly dump the dog food in the dish and run as fast as I could back to the house until I got back to the porch light and then I would stop catch myself compose myself so I could walk back into the house, calm <laughs> and under control, right? Um, there is something fearful about the unknown, right? God is an unknown factor. He ought to be an unknown factor. Uh, oftentimes the Old Testament describes him as being clothed or robed in, in thick black clouds of darkness. 
What is that about? Well, it's about the fact that God is mysterious in His being. There is much about Him that is not revealed to us, that is unknown and unknowable. He is unsearchable in His ways. He is incomprehensible in His being. Right? Uh, that's one part that, of God that makes us fearful. The other thing is that we fear things we cannot control. Now, one of the reasons I can rock climb, and the same reason this girl here can rock climb, is that she has devices in place to help control gravity and this rock. Okay, she's got climbing gear, she's got rope, she's got equipment to tame uh, the risk. Right? Uh, now, of course, lead climbing, if you notice, her, the, with her, the rope is below her. Lead climbing, it means there's no rope above you. And it means when you fall, you do fall. But it's a managed risk, right? It is somewhat in control. But we do not control God. Right? Uh, we do not control God. There is something about God that is absolutely out of control. Um, my experience has not, for the most part, been one of fearing God. I don't know about you, but, but my sense is most people in the modern world don't fear God. Why is that? Why is it we don't have the sense of awe or dread at God's presence? Well, I think it's because the church and Christianity and our modern world has gone to great lengths to tame God. Right? We don't want a God who is untamed and out of control. Right? We want a God who is tame and controlled, and we do that in two ways. Uh, first of all, we tame him uh, by making him... Uh, well, first we tame him by making him controllable, Okay? By putting him in a box that keeps him in control. Uh, you know, right now the, the market is being flooded with books about how loving God is. And a loving God sells well, okay? You make God kind of like Santa Claus, kind of this harmless, tottering old fool who is not dangerous. Uh, you know, the, the worst that can happen to you is he gives you a lump of coal instead of the toy you wanted, right? Uh, a lot of books sell a God who's like that. A God whose love is all about happy, nice guy, right? Not a love that's fierce and just and demanding, right? We can tame God by isolating who God is into little pieces that we like, right? Uh, so there's churches, but I, I've had pastors say this. Well, you know, we only teach about the loving God. We don't teach about a just God, all right? In other words, I can't handle a God that's not tame, all right? Is God loving? Well, absolutely God is loving. But is his love fierce? Absolutely. And to exclude God's attributes of justice and righteousness and holiness and fearful wrath is both to diminish his love and to make God something far less than he is. The reality is that it is God's love that motivates his anger. God, here's the deal, God gets really ticked off when the people he loves are harmed. Right? That's love. If you're a parent, especially if you're a dad, you probably understand this. Somebody harms one of your children, somebody attacks or threatens one of your kids, you're not Santa Claus, okay? You're mean. And uh, you'll hurt people, right? Because you love your children and you will protect them. Okay, I live in, again, I live in America. People are kind of crazy there. And the state I live in gives you the right to shoot people dead if they enter your house, right? I like that law, okay? Because right? I'm going to, out of love, I'm going to protect my family. All right? Now, thankfully, I've never had the option to use it, but I've had the will to, right? 
There's something loving in that. All right? God is that kind of God and more so. Okay? Praise God you have somebody on your side who's not going to mess with people or nobody's going to mess with him when they try to harm you. Praise God when Satan comes against you, there's a God that's willing to stand before you with fierce justice and anger. Right? Uh, Sadly, we have made God into some kind of stuffed, overstuffed, marshmallow, Santa Claus God because we want to tame God. We want a God who's under control. Uh, Secondly, we tame God by putting him in a box of theology. Now, I love theology. I think theology is important. However, it's really easy to make theology a means to fully comprehend and grasp everything about God so that we can explain Him and make Him predictable. And if that's the goal of your theology, your theology stinks. (laughs) Okay? If your theology has so explained God that you, you never have a sense of mystery or unknownness about Him, uh, your theology falls far short and your God is far too small. Right? Theology ought to have the opposite sense. The, the more we, we delve into the truth about who God is, the more we have to come away with a sense of, holy moly. <laughs> I don't know what that actually means, but it just sounds good. This, this, this sense of, I don't understand all this. Right? If your theology can explain God and answer every question, okay, you're either not asking the right questions or you have no clue about who God is. Right? You know, you look at a story like this, And it bothers me, honestly, that God picks Jacob, who's this scheming, conniving, lying little jerk who just ripped off his older brother. And at the same time, God rejects Esau. Why does he do that? Where's the love, right? I don't know why. And, And to put God into a box that explains all that way in a neat, tidy package... Uh, is to rob God of the awe and wonder of who He is. There's a lot about God we cannot explain and understand. God is, in, is, consistent. He, God is consistent in His character. Okay, God is governed not by the box we put Him in, but by His own nature and character. And praise God, He is unchanging, and He has revealed a great deal about His, his character and nature to us. There is a great deal we can know and seek to understand about God. But we must be very careful that in our search for truth, we're not really trying trying to find ways to control God and make Him bite-sized, make Him tame. That's not who God is. Uh, Sadly, I've heard people say, uh, when they hear things about God that seem reckless, out of control, and confusing, uh, I've heard Christian people say this, well, I I don't want to know a God like that. I don't want to worship a God like that. Really? What if that's what he is? Right? Are we really willing to encounter God as he is in the fullness of his being? Right? Or do we need God to be something that fits us? Right? Uh, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Because God is what he is regardless of what we think of him. Right? Uh, we need a God, uh, and ought to, if we're on the right tra- track... We ought to have a sense of God that's ever grander and in some ways more terrible and in some ways more endearing. Right? Uh, not only is it terrible, but there's something incredibly beautiful and majestic about who God is. And uh, 
for me, when I can't explain it and when it's beyond what I can even grasp, it makes it more compelling and alluring and beautiful. He is in many ways beyond description. Uh, another synonym for awe is to be breathtaking. And I, I like that description. We worship a God who is, in many respects, breathtaking. Right? When we encounter him, as we grow to know him more and more, there ought to be something about his character and nature, his being, that is to us breathtaking and awesome and wonderful. Um, there should be something in our relationship with God that is, in a degree, unsettling. Uh, now, as we grow to know Him, as we grow to walk with Him, uh, as we grow to trust Him, there should also be a sense of deeper confidence, but not because we can control Him or figure Him out, uh, but because we understand uh, that of all that He is, He is loving, and His loving intentions towards me are good. But we must also realize that sometimes what God calls good, I call lousy, <laughs> right? And sometimes life can take a very wrong direction from my point of view. It doesn't mean God is any less loving or caring or good. It just means I don't know how he's going to work. We ought to have a greater sense of awe if we're really on the right track. If God is becoming increasingly dull and boring, you're on the wrong track. Okay, You're headed the wrong direction. Uh, Second signpost, uh, we should be ever more compelled to worship, okay? A greater sense of worship. Uh, Jacob, after he names this place Bethel, and he uh, calls it the gateway to heaven, it says that he gets up, he took the stone he'd been sleeping on, he stands it up as a pillar and anoints it with with oil. Um, And it's significant that the motive of all this is he's had this incredible encounter with God. And I don't know, it doesn't really say what Jacob was thinking or what was going on in his head, his mind, his thoughts. But if, I were, if, if we could put ourselves for a second in Jacob's shoes, let's put ourselves where, where he is, okay? Here's this guy who knows he's just a con man, right? I mean, he knows what he's done to his brother. He just, you know, he just lied, this bold-faced lie to his father. Uh, we, we know it troubled him a little bit because he actually quested, questioned his mom when she put the plan forward. Remember, she, he said, you know, Mom, is this really such a good idea? Uh, not for the right reasons, but he did question it. Somewhere there was a check in his kind of corrupted conscience. Um, he knows he is not deserving of this, I think. Uh, there's a sense in which he knows... Um, that what God has given to him is an incredible gift of grace. Right? Uh, when we know that we've got something we really didn't deserve, it should the, the natural response to that is one of worship. Right? Uh, you know, imagine imagine if you're a small child in some ancient city who lives on the streets and is starving to death, and uh, you're starving. You have no resources, no means. You're orphaned. And so you go to a little fruit vendor on the street and you sneak up behind the guy and you steal a banana. And you tear off down the street and the guy sees you and he runs after you and he catches you. He takes you to the authorities and he says, this, this little brat stole my banana. And uh, it's a place of severe justice. They say, okay, you, you know, you've got to either pay an exorbitant fine you can't afford or we're going to chop off your hand. You have no money, you have no resources, and you say, I, I can't pay it. 
So they take you outside and they strap your arm to a big wooden block and this guy comes out with this huge hoss axe. He lifts it up and he's about to chop off your hand. And uh, you know that this is really going to hurt. And you are bracing to have your arm, your hand chopped off. And just then, somebody steps forward and grabs the executioner, grabs the axe, and he says, I'll pay the fine. What would you feel in that moment? <laughs> Incredible relief, right? Uh, and incredible awe at this person. I would want to know who this person is, and I would want to be, I would like, you know, I would be kissing his feet. I would be, I would be in awe and honor of this person who intervened for me. Uh, if we really understand all that Jesus did for us, uh, if we really understand what it means for Jesus to be the gateway to heaven, that through him, through his death, through the cross, what he has purchased for us, the natural response to that is one of great worship, right? great gratitude at what God has done. Um, too often, and this is, uh, again, a confession of my own life, too often worship becomes something that I know I'm supposed to do and I know I'm supposed to get excited about, but honestly, you know, I just don't feel it, right? I don't, I don't feel like worshiping God, right? But I think I'm supposed to do it, so I kind of drum up something and I kind of go through the motions. Because that's not at all what Jacob does here, is it? Jacob has just encountered God. He has a sense of awe and wonder at God's presence. And he is excited to worship God, to somehow honor and commemorate God in this place. And uh, normally what he would have done, I think had he had the resources, what he would have done would be to offer a burnt offering. Both uh, Abraham and Isaac, when they met God for the first time, set up an altar and, and offered burnt offerings. But here's Jacob. He's out there, you know, no money, no cash, nothing, no animal. doesn't even have a donkey that he's riding to sacrifice. Nothing. What can he do? Well, he sets up this rock as a pillar, which was a common thing. It could, it could be a memorial stone, a memorial pillar, a way to commemorate or memorialize something significant. And he takes one of the few things that he has, a vial of olive oil, and he pours it out. Why did he have olive oil? Well, chances are, traveling through the desert, he had a couple of things. He probably had some loaves of what are by now very hard, old, stale, dry bread to, to eat, and probably a little vial, a little skin of olive oil. And each night as he got to his campsite, he would pull out his stale, hard, dry, old, dusty bread, and he would pour out some of the olive oil, and he would dip the bread into the olive oil to make it kind of edible. Okay, pretty much like we would use butter, right? And uh, he would get some nutrition from the oil, and plus it would make the bread edible. Okay? Now, get the picture. Here's this guy pouring out the olive oil, which means all he has left is the stale, dry bread. Okay? There's something of sacrifice in this. Right? But it is what he has, and it is what he can give. And it is his way to worship and honor God. I think it's significant that, uh, that worship um, is ultimately a sacrifice we give willingly and freely to God to honor him. True worship costs something. Um, true worship ought to cost us something. Uh, it's, it's, it's ironic that we call Sunday morning, we often call this a worship service. Uh, and oftentimes we come... And, uh, and I don't know why you came this morning, and I can't, thankfully I don't know, and I can't, I can't put in your mind, but uh, 
you know, the church in the West is quite consumer-driven. So we won't talk about our church. We'll talk about churches somewhere else. Consumer-driven, where most people go to church because they like the music, because they have a rockin' band, because the speaker is entertaining, because they put on a good show, and I don't have to do anything. I just show up as a spectator, and it costs me nothing. And I call it worship. Really? Right? Is that really what worship is? Worship throughout Scripture is a sacrifice of praise that costs us something. Right? Uh, here's the truth. You know, we ought to make our services a lot more boring and painful. Because then you can say, God, I endured church for you. Right? That would be worship. You know, maybe we should get harder chairs or something. I, in fact, these are hard enough. I don't know. Turn off the air conditioning. <laughs> that would cost, wouldn't it? Right? Um, thankfully, we won't do that. Don't worry, don't worry. Um, you know, what can we give to God that is worship? Well, certainly we can give our time, our money, and ourself, right? Uh, as we willingly make sacrifices... To serve and love and follow God, it's worship, right? So the reality is, um, you know, the, the staff person with, with Campus Crusade who comes in and cleans this building and cleans up all our mess, you know, if she does that for uh, a service to God as an acting gift of worship, okay, that's probably a hundred times more worshipful than oftentimes when we sing these great songs, right? Because she's doing it, making a sacrifice of love and devotion, okay? Now, I'm not saying that praise is not important. And praise and worship are not the same thing. Praise is the, is the act of choosing to exclaim God's greatness and thankfulness through things like praise, declaration, and song. Maybe we could call it more appropriately a praise service. Worship is giving God to something, uh, giving to God something that costs us personally. Right? If you are here to, because you have given up your life to serve and follow God, your life is a gift of worship, right? If you're putting up with things in this culture and in this place that drive you crazy, it's worship, right? Uh, I have learned uh, just rather recently that, you know, there's a lot of things in life that frustrate me, irritate me, I don't like. And uh, God's really shown me, you know, you can grumble about those things or you can give those things to me as a sacrifice of worship. Okay, I'm not always real successful at it, but I try, you know. God, I don't like this, but uh, let this be an act of worship to you. Uh, so we worship through sacrifice. Secondly, uh, we worship by remembering. And uh, as Jacob sets up this, this uh, stone, uh, it really is a memorial pillar. It's a place to mark the spot where he encountered God. And it's a means by which Jacob can return to this place and remember the promises and presence of God. Right? Uh, part of worship is remembering. It is a conscious and deliberate effort to remember and recall the great things God has done in our life. Uh, for us, you know, we don't normally set up pillars, although we could. In your yard, put up a big pillar. People ask you, what's with the rock in your yard? You know, I'm remembering God. Right? Possible. Uh, here are some other options, though. Um, 
Of course, things like baptism and the Lord's Supper are for us memorial stones. Okay, it's a way to memorialize and commemorate God's grace at work in our life. Uh, things like dedication or commissioning services, uh, where we come forward and publicly commit or dedicate our life to full-time ministry or service or to surrender our life to Christ, is a public way to memorialize our, uh, our response to God's grace in our life. Uh, keeping a journal, or maybe nowadays keeping a blog, <laughs> um, can be a great way to memorialize what God's doing in your life. Okay? Uh, for me, writing uh, n- newsletters has really become for me a way to do this. I really try with my very sporadic newsletters um, to make them a testimony to remember the, the great things God is doing in my life. Right? A great way to publicly d- declare, God is doing incredible things in my life and I worship Him. I remember these things. Uh, using anniversaries, you know, marking a date on your calendar and every year remembering, this is the day I came to Christ. This is the day God did this miracle in my life. Right? Uh, and, and declaring those things. Um, using Facebook posts uh, as a way of publicly saying, praise God for what he's doing in my life. Right? Lastly, um, the last, last mark we should be looking for, now. so we should be looking for the mark, see if I can remember these. Can we remember these? The mark of, I can't remember them. Can you? Well, we'll move on. Be thankful. Be thinking. Uh, the last mark as a thankful as a thankful life. Um, it's interesting. Jacob ends this by making a vow. Now, for a lot of us, and, and you may read this, and you may think, well, this is certainly a, a sign of his immaturity, and uh, there's something wrong with this. And part of it is because we have the wrong idea of what a vow is. For us, a vow is often a way of manipulating and conning God, and controlling God to do something we want. Right. But in the Old Testament and in, in Jacob's time, a vow did not operate that way. A vow was basically this. First of all, it was a cry for help. Okay? You read through the Psalms, you read through places where vows are uttered. Usually it means I'm in, a, I'm in trouble and I recognize I don't have the answers and I need God's help. Right? That's pretty where, much where Jacob is now. He says, you know, I'm, I'm being chased out of my home. I'm being chased to a foreign country. I want to come home. I want to return to this place where you live, but I can't do this on my own. Right? He says, God, if you will indeed be with me and protect me, if you will help me and provide with food and clothing, and if you will uh, help me return safely home, right, then I will keep my vow. So first of all, it is a promise. It's recognizing we need God's help, and it's crying out to him to help us. And in that sense, a vow is really a declaration of faith. It is help. Secondly, it's trusting in God's promises. Right? And it's interesting, in, uh, in, as Jacob states his vow to God, he simply restates what God has already promised him. Right? A, a vow is always a commitment to trusting in what God has already promised you. Right? So if, if, we're, you know, if we're trying to manipulate God into getting something we want, that's not actually something he promised, okay, then we're not really using the vow correctly. Okay, a vow is restating and really praying toward God's unfulfilled promises in our life. Right? 
So it's saying, God, you have promised to take care of me. You have promised to provide food and clothing, to watch over my needs. You have promised to give protection. You have promised to be with me. And I am praying and trusting in those promises. And lastly, it is the promise to be grateful. He says, if you do all these things, then uh, I will come back to this place and it will be a place of worship and I will present a tenth of everything God gives me. Uh, What is that about? Well, I think it's this. It's praying in a way that is intentional about being thankful when God answers. It's, It's a way of being deliberate beforehand about how you're going to be grateful afterward. Right? So you're in the midst of a financial difficulty and you pray, God, I need help. I, I, we don't have enough money to pay the bills this month and I'm trusting you because you promised to be faithful and to provide. I'm trusting you to meet our needs. And when you do, this is how I'm going to be thankful. Okay? And it's being intentional beforehand about your commitment to give thanks. Uh, he does it here by promising to come back and worship God and to give a tenth of everything that God blesses him with. Uh, There's a lot of ways to be thankful. Uh, But I love this picture of being intentional about it beforehand. Most of the time I pray this way, God, I need help, I need your provision, I need your, and I trust in you. And when you take care of it, I don't say this, but this is what I imply. When you take care of it and do a miracle in my life, I'm going to go on my merry way as if nothing ever happened. Right? I'll say that, but it's, but it's what I do, right? Um, being intentional, like, God, I want my life to be motivated by gratitude and thankfulness. I think if we're on the right track, if we're truly seeking God and we're moving in that direction, there ought to be in our sense a much grander sense of gratitude and thankfulness. Okay, more and more every day our life should be characterized by true thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you that by your grace and by your goodness, you come to us as you did to Jacob and you reveal yourself to us. You open our eyes to see the spiritual realities around us. Lord, we thank you that you sent your own son to be the doorway Uh, the entry point through which we have access to your throne. Um, And Lord, you paid a great price to open that portal between heaven and earth so that there could be free access to your presence. Uh, You paid the price of your very own son. And Lord, if that doesn't make us grateful and thankful, uh, I don't know what could. So, Lord, above all, I pray that you would help us to really reflect upon and think and understand and grasp what you have done for us already, Uh, the incredible links you've gone to already to bless us and make us your children. And beyond that, Lord, help us to be people who live by faith, who call upon you to get us out of our, our jams, get us out of the trouble we're in. Uh, Lord, we need to encounter you and we need to experience you in ways that are real and tangible and connect with our everyday life Uh, because that's what uh, stimulates us to worship you 
not just to go through motions, but to be uh, inflamed with a desire to honor you and to proclaim your love and goodness, to be moved uh, to genuine, heartfelt worship. Lord, help us to be true worshipers. Help us to be people of great thanksgiving. Lord, we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, this time.